0: I invite you to turn with me in the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, to the 10th chapter. We're going to read together once again the first 12 verses. This is part of the teaching of Jesus. And Luke records for us there, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Life is a very dangerous endeavor. As a result, we live in a growing litigious society. We try to avoid having to end up in court, so people and corporations are increasingly practicing full disclosure. They're being clear, upfront about what they're product will do or what they're promising. They put it on the label. They put it in their advertising and they put it in lengthy purchase agreements and contracts. So it is not too far-fetched or too unimaginable to believe that someday this following scenario might actually infiltrate the hospital's nursery. Imagine this scene. A newborn baby in the bassinet and an attorney standing by their side, saying, Welcome to the post-umbilical cord world. Be advised that human life has been known in almost every single case to result in death. Some individuals have reported experiences with lethal viruses, chemical agents, and even bloodthirsty terrorists. Birth can also result in fatal encounters with tsunamis, and inebriated drivers, and road rage, and famine, and war, with nuclear disaster, fires, flooding, hurricanes, earthquakes, and tornadoes. Side effects of living may include superviruses, heart disease, cancer, aging, and final exams. Human life is not recommended for anyone who cannot share this planet with evil despots and criminals or who can't survive a flight with airline food. Even Jesus suggests that things are going to get worse before they get better. Jesus himself talked about spiritual bailouts and ecological turmoil and worldwide persecution. He counseled those who would listen. He said, don't freak out when bad stuff happens. Because bad stuff is going to happen. The animosity towards people of faith and the persecution of Christians in our society continues to escalate, even in this nation. People are increasingly hostile to people of faith, to believers. Professors in secular universities openly mock Bible-believing students. Believers have been terminated for praying for stating that marriage is between one man and one woman, for requesting a Sunday off. Talk show hosts and media regularly denigrate people to faith. Judges are increasingly unsympathetic to faith issues and to the people that hold them. Persecution in the United States and around the world is rapidly growing. Last year, according to the Esther Project, 7,100 Christians were murdered simply because they acknowledged Jesus was Lord. Over 9,000 people were detained, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. Over 2,500 churches were burned. Today, over 245 million Christians live in places where they experience a high probability of persecution and physical harm. So in the interest of full disclosure, understand that life outside of our huddles and outside of our predominantly Christian communities, that is, life out there in the field, can be very hazardous and dangerous to life. So Jesus sent 72, our passage says, out into the field, into the nearby towns and villages. Jesus himself spent a great deal of his time going from small Jewish village to small Jewish village in Galilee. We have scripture testimony that he was in Cana and Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin and Nazareth. All of those little towns and villages were about three to 800 in population in Jesus' day. But we also know that Jesus, on occasion, took his disciples to non-Jewish towns, to Gergesa in the Decapolis, to Caesarea Philippi, to Tyre and to Sidon and to other places. Those of you who have been to Galilee know that there was also a very large Roman cities that were planted right in the heart of Galilee that we don't read about in the Scriptures. One named Sipporah's is less than two miles from where Jesus grew up within easy walking distance. In fact, if you're on one of the knolls in Nazareth, you can see the town. Each of these Roman cities featured a magnificent temple, at least one, maybe more, for religious indoctrination. A large gymnasium, what in those days was the equivalent of going to school. Public baths. 10,000 plus seat theaters for political indoctrination, and a huge, often 15,000 or more, seat sports arena for competitions, and usually huge shopping malls known as agoras for, with wide, smooth, columned, paved streets. So the comparison between going to Sepphoris, a a Roman city, or the little itty-bitty towns of Nazareth or Capernaum or Bethsaida or Chorazin were rather striking and stark. It's like comparing tens of thousands to hundreds. Like comparing wealth to poverty. Like comparing ostentatious building marvels and miracles to crude homes and thatched roofs pleasure to austerity, about being God's focused, to being God focused. I wonder, I wonder what the disciples thought when Jesus actually brought them to one of those cities. (laughs) Wow. Can you believe this? Our parents forbade us from going into one of these cities And now now our rabbi is actually taking us there. I mean, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. This is unbelievable beyond even my best imagination. They have everything. (laughs) Can't wait to get back here sometime on my own time. Every Jewish parent's nightmare was that their child would see what the world had to offer and get sucked into the culture. That they would embrace the world's way of living over their faith-based way of life. Christian parents are still concerned about that today. You see, the enticement of the world lures people into its trap And sadly, as many as 80% of the children of believers walk away from the faith of their parents. So Jesus is taking his disciples into these cities and into these fields so that he can prepare them for what they are about to encounter when he decides it's time to send them out into the world. And now when Jesus sends them out into every town and into every place, he's telling them that they shouldn't just reserve themselves to go to places that are comfortable and friendly and safe. But to understand where they're going to go, it's not going to be comfortable. It'll hardly be friendly, and it certainly won't be safe. They're not only to go to Jewish towns. They're not only to go where people look and think like they do. They're not only to go to places where people will welcome and embrace what they have to offer. No, Jesus says that they're going to have to go to every town and every place. So Jesus is slowly training his disciples that they're to be about his mission. Jesus also wants his disciples to know and to be able to share his heart and his passion For the lost and for a rich and abundant harvest. In Acts 1, 8, as Jesus commissions them and then ascends into heaven, Jesus says, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and then to the very ends of the world, to every town and to every village. Jesus said his mission would begin in Jerusalem. It would begin in Judea. It would begin in the neighborhood. It would begin in the place where people looked like and thought like they did. But then the Spirit would push them out, first into Samaria, and then ultimately into the world. The Bible tells us that the Spirit sent them out in pairs, Barnabas and Saul, Paul and Silas. He sent them first to Roman cities with synagogues so that they would have a connection. They could go where they were welcome first or sort of welcomed and then face where they were not welcome. And then finally, the Spirit sends the disciples and the apostles to places where there was no synagogue where there were no friendly faces or people, where there was only imprisonment, persecution, even stoning to places like Philippi and Athens and others. I'm sure the disciples wondered about this plan. What do we have to offer? How can we... Ever convince these pagan people that have everything that they ought to give it all up and take up a cross and follow Jesus? Why would they listen to us? And why in the world would I want to do this? Why would I want to pass on all of these pleasures and all of these opportunities and risk my life? From all outward appearances, The Romans and the Greeks seemed to have it all. All the pleasures, all the possessions, all the prosperities. (laughs) Why don't we join them instead of invite them to join us? Or maybe the disciples wondered, why should I care about these pagans? Why should I spend my time and my energy and my life wanting them to see Jesus When all they do is abuse us, ridicule us, mock us, why should we risk our lives for them? The answer is simple. The disciples never even debated it. You see, the disciples had followed this Jesus for three years. They had grown to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were absolutely convinced that he was the son of God. And Jesus had shared his heart with them. And they had caught it. And all they wanted to do was be like Jesus. All they wanted to do was what Jesus did. All they wanted to do was honor him with their life. So this small bunch of fishermen and other common folk took on the world, went out into the field. And over 200 years later, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, went from 0% followers of Jesus to over 90% Christian. Today there are 2.5 billion followers of Jesus. The scent movement Continues, it's still the plan, the only plan. Our world still promotes gymnasiums and baths and sports and shopping and media and pleasures and power and money and all the gods you want. The world still entices people to join them. But whether they know it or not, they are desperately in need of the gospel. For without it, there is no hope. For without it, they can't experience comfort. Without it, they will experience no peace. And because, and because we don't join them, because we aren't doing it their way, because we're not saying they're right and they got what we want, they will not always be friendly to us. So in the spirit of full disclosure, Jesus instructs the 72 and the rest of us, that is, all of us who he's calling and sending, in how to engage the world for the harvest. He says, Don't forget you're going into the world. Don't forget you're going into enemy territory. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of hungry wolves. Don't worry about, don't waste your time making provision for tomorrow. Trust that God will protect you and will provide for you. So he says, carry no purse, no bag, no shoes. He says, don't get sidetracked. Don't get waylaid. Don't allow anyone or anything to get in the way. Keep the main thing, the main thing all the time. Jesus says, I'm sending you out to bring in the harvest, so go. I'm sending you out as lambs before wolves, so go. And we say, what? What kind of pep talk is that? How do you get pumped up to go and risk your lives in front of predators? I don't know about you, but I have seen some of those documentaries of wolves and how they surround their prey. It's not pleasant. You could literally get eaten alive. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. It's dangerous to be a lamb among wolves. Truth is, it seldom goes well. One can get devoured as, as you and I know, many of the disciples of Jesus succumbed to a wicked, self-centered world. Maybe that's why the harvest is in desperate need of workers. Because the task is hard. Because it's literally putting your life in danger. Because it underscores the fact that you'll be mocked and you'll be ridiculed and you'll be rejected and you'll be hated and you might even be persecuted. It reminds us that lambs are literally defenseless. And lambs are completely dependent on the protection of their shepherd. Jesus has Matthew record a similar warning in Matthew 10, where we read, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils. They will flag you even in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. If we're to go out and challenge the world's lifestyle, challenge the world's values and choices and pleasures, if we're to say, you're sinful and you're evil and you're selfish and it's all about you, the response is not going to be one of welcome and embrace Often it's anger and hatred. But then Jesus told us about that too. Full disclosure. He said, as the world has hated me, they will hate you. Just understand, it hated me first. You see, darkness hates light. Evil hates righteousness. Truth is living out our commitment to Jesus in this world, and it will never be comfortable or popular or risk-free. Truth is, if it ever becomes comfortable, something's wrong. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. It'll be okay. Go boldly. Jesus says, many will come, and many will try to deceive you, See to it that you are not alarmed, that you are not deceived. Jesus says, Don't freak out at heresy or calamity or apostasy or hatred or wolves. Don't give up. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some of you have seen the movie The End of the Spear. This is a story of Jim Elliott and four other missionaries, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, and Roger Yondolin. They left their homes, they left their comforts for the gospel of Jesus Christ and went to the Adani tribe in Ecuador. Nate Saint landed their plane on the Currency River. Everything seemed to be going well until one of the tribe members told the chief what the well, he lied about what the missionary's intention was. And as a result, 10 warriors came with spears and massacred the four missionaries right on the beach. Two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, and Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, and her son returned to the Aka Indians. And as a result, many gave their life to Jesus Christ, including the man who lied about the missionary's intent and the chief. Elliot's prayer was for more harvest workers, and God used their deaths to raise up many, many missionaries. You see, Jim lived his life by this principle. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Because of their sacrifice, literally thousands of missionaries were raised up around the world. Jim was a lamb. He paid the price. But his price was no more than the price that his Savior, Jesus Christ, paid. And the question for every Christian is, Are we willing to take up the cross, his cross? Are we too willing to pay the price? We understand the dangers of going on foreign soil can be risky. But what about the wolves in our own neighborhood? Are we willing to face them? Does our faith conquer our fear? Are we willing to be Jesus' advance team in our neighborhood? Or do we prefer to hide in the comfort of our homes and of our huddles? We profess to say the kingdom of God is near. Are we willing to stake our life on it? Jesus never tells the world to go to church. But he continually tells, literally commands the church to go to the world. As he reminds us, lambs are protected by the shepherd, and he has given us the best shepherd. So Jesus says, do not take a purse, don't take money, don't take a bag, don't take extra clothes, don't take sandals, go light, but go. Leaving behind the normal traveling equipment underscores a disciple's vulnerability and his ultimate dependence on the Father. Will God provide? He promised. You see, if you and I really believe that God wants us all to go on mission, then we also need to trust God to be able to provide all the necessary things to accomplish the mission. If we really believe that God is calling us to a certain task, to a certain future, to a certain decision, then the only response is to to do it, to obey. That applies to a call to a mission trip, to a church plant, to a new ministry, to sacrificial giving. The list is, is long. It applies to us personally. It also applies to us corporately. The word from Jesus is simple. Trust God to provide everything you need. He promised to give it. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at his last supper, he reflected back on this challenge that he gave to the 72 and to his disciples. And he said, when I sent you out with no money bag, with no knapsack, with no sandals, did you lack anything? And the disciples said, nothing and then he said to them now let the one who has a money bag take it along and the one who has a knapsack use it as well so jesus opens up the set of instructions to say going forward whatever you need do you trust him enough to obey do you trust him enough to provide See, the principle, once again, is underscored for us here. Our focus needs to be on the mission, not on all the peripheral stuff. We need to trust God is going to provide everything we need to accomplish that particular mission. So Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me, it will work out in the end. And if it doesn't appear to be working out, then it's not yet the end. So Jesus says in verse 4, don't stop to greet anyone. Jesus says, stay focused. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get distracted from this mission. Stay on task. I love the Yiddish translation. Don't schmooze. Literally don't chit-chat. Don't engage in idle conversation. Don't gossip. It's derived from the Hebrew Shemot. Things heard. Rumors. It conveys that Jesus' instruction is not to waste time on the road, but to hurry to the destination, hurry to the harvest field, get the work done, bring in the harvest. Jesus gives it a sense of urgency and desperation here in these verses. In fact, it's exactly the same instruction that Elisha gave the Gehazi in the Old Testament. Elisha said to him, If you meet anybody, don't greet them. If anybody greets you, don't even answer. Jesus' mission comes with an overwhelming sense of urgency. The harvest, he says, is abundant. The harvest is ripe. The workers, however, are few. But the harvest has to be gathered in and it needs to be done now. Even customary greetings can take too much time, can be too distractive, can complicate the mission, keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, this is probably hyperbole to underscore the extreme urgency since it isn't made obvious why if we meet somebody along the road, we shouldn't share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them as well. But the question for us here this morning is why why wouldn't anyone join this mission? Why wouldn't everyone? There's one reason why people come and stay. It's because they love Jesus. And because they know Jesus loves them. Because they know what Jesus did for them. And now they're willing to do whatever Jesus asks them to do. It's the only reason. Maybe we should view the church more like a football game. Now, my using a sports analogy this morning is going to get me in trouble when I get home. But I'm going to use it anyway. Stay with me. A 100,000 people don't pay $75 to $100 and even more week after week to watch players on the field huddle. They pay to see what difference the huddle makes in how they play the game. In fact, the rules of football say that if you huddle too long, if you huddle for more than 30 seconds, if you're not back in action, back in the game, back on mission, you get penalized. The church loves its huddles. We even like to compare our huddles. My huddle is bigger than your huddle. My huddle is more diverse than your huddle. My quarterback calls better plays than your quarterback. But while we're huddling, the opposition is running up and down the field scoring. The Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and Scientologists added over a half million converts last year in the United States alone. And the Christian church declined. And as we noted last week, over 100,000 people are dying every day that don't know Jesus. Following Jesus was never designed to be limited to the church gathered. Jesus reminds us that the church is also designed to be scattered. Believers are to come and go. See, the church is called to gather for worship. It is to gather to hear God's word. It's to gather to pray together. It is to gather to fellowship with one another. And then the church is designed to scatter to receive God's blessing and to go, to be salt and to be light, to serve and to evangelize, to love and to care for others in this world, to bring in the harvest. When the meetings were over, the first disciples, well, they thought about the lost, about connecting with them, about serving them, about bringing them to Jesus. They came to the huddle to get the play, to offer some encouragement to one another, and then they went out into the world to build a church, to be the church. Meeting together is absolutely necessary, but it's not the work of the church. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, now called Crew, said, we huddle in our little prayer meetings and talk of peripheral, superficial matters. We're content to see accomplished in the name of Jesus only what we are capable of accomplishing through our limited intellect, eloquence, and organizational skills. Some are content to sit and to wait comfortably for someone else to do it. Some lack the courage to step out and to trust God Hesitant to to give sacrificially of their time and of their resources and of their dollars. Some simply sidestep the challenge, figuring it's not going to do anything anyway. It's not going to change anything. So why risk the retaliation and the embarrassment of standing up for Jesus, for justice, or praying fervently or daily for the harvest? Don't be the sum. Be the one. Be the one who follows Jesus. See, Jesus came on mission to transform this world for his Father's glory. He calls us to be his workers in the world's fields. It's true. Full disclosure, it's not without its dangers. But if you love him, if your feet are covered with your rabbi, with Jesus' dust, your decision has already been made. Let's pray together. So, Father, we acknowledge life is hard. And following Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in this world is even harder. But knowing your love for us, knowing what sacrifice you were willing to make, Father, call us to make that same sacrifice of giving you our life so you can use it for your honor and for your glory. Father, hear our prayers. We offer them in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.